the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 36, Doctor Who, Galaxy 4. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest podcast. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today we're doing our very first Missing Doctor Who. Uh, there are fragments of it available and one full episode. It's Galaxy 4. Now this is taken, this is the official recon from the Aztec Special Edition DVD. So it, it's not actually our first Doctor Who where there are missing things. It's our, our first reconstruction of it. Our first reconstruction, yes. Because we've done the Dalek Master Plan episode. Mm. We've done, is it just Dalek Master Plan we've done that where it's missing? I think it is. Mm. Anyway, mm. This, this is the first reconstruction as part of the Aztec Special Edition. Now, I've seen this and I think it's marvellous. And I haven't. I've never been overly blown away by Galaxy 4, so I'm coming to this with a, an open mind, and, and it's been a, a quite a few years now since I've seen a recon of it. I mean, have, have you seen the recovered episode? I don't think I have. I'm, I don't think I've seen Airlock. I've listened, I knew that we were doing Galaxy 4 this session, so I have listened to the first two missing episodes on CD. Because, I mean, there's a, also a sizable chunk of episode one that exists as clips. There is, yeah. So um, it, it'll be nice in... Uh, seeing it all put together. Before we do crack on... We have a gin review. Yeah, we do. Let's get out the tonic screwdriver. What have we got this morning? Right, well, this is another gin that's courtesy of the little gin box, as provided by my lovely little sister. And this is Thunderflower Gin, which has juniper, coriander, angelica, pink peppercorn... Green and black cardamoms, licorice, elderflower, cassia, lemongrass, and sage. Struth. Right. That's a... Are apart we, from... Are the, we not a fan? <laughs> it's certainly a mouthful. I mean, um, it is when you put I mean, it in it hits you in the hindbrain, certainly. Is this mixed with anything? Yes, it's got tonic in it. Good God. And you've drowned it in about half a gallon of ice. I can't drink gin and tonic without ice, but that is a very potent gin. It's 42%. All right, taste potent. That that's really nice and cardamomy. I don't know what to make of that. Well, you haven't had enough of it then. And it smells lovely as well, doesn't it? There's an awful lot of flavours in that. Mm. I and they, and it stays with you. Mm. Um, Warming, I would say. It's like a posset. It's. Uh, Do you know, I don't know what a posset is. Oh, just a a nightcap, basically, but with all sorts of things in it as a as a night warmer. You'd have it before bed. Uh, so a bit like mulled wine? Sort of, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not a fan. It's too overpowering for me. It's... Oh, no, I think that's lovely. Yeah, it's not my style at all. But there's... If you want a gin that tastes of something, by God, you've got it there. That's... Yeah. that. There's a lot of flavours. Let me just have a look at the card. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, if I were to drink this again, I wouldn't drink it with tonic. I'd do it as a martini. Hmm. And just um, shake it with ice and vermouth. But no, I, I think this is lovely. I am regrettably um, going to give it my second two. It's, yeah, it's, it's not too burnished for me, I'm afraid. Um, I'm going with a solid four. Excellent. Different strokes, different folks. Absolutely. We shall now open the Black Archive and see what we can pull out of that. What's your take for the... The Black Archive. Well, to be quite honest, it would seem stupid not to pull out Galaxy 4. Well, what I was going to say is that I think, as we said last time, that's a bit of a cheat. It is a bit so of a cheat. So I, I think that when we're doing a Black Archive for an edition where there are missing episodes from that edition, then that's an automatic... Disqualification. ...into the, into the Black Archive, and we kind of need a bit of imagination to pick something else. Balls. Don't know that one. <laughs> hmm. Well, I'm going to pick another Doctor Who, and it'll be four and five of the Reign of Terror. It's the first Doctor Who story that properly shocked me from the black and white era. Really? Which bit of it? Uh, the bit where Hartnell smashes some random guard over the head with a spade. Do you know, I haven't seen Reign of Terror in years. Yeah, it, it was one of those that I watched. The first time I ever saw it was with a mate of mine, David Foster, who's no longer with us, in Croydon. And he knew that I'd not seen it, he'd been saving it up. But this 
Hartnell just gets to be brutal and right at the end I think it's Robespierre gets shot through the jaw and you watch this man come out gripping his face dripping with blood but I mean that, that bit is historically accurate it is historically accurate I just didn't expect to see it on screen mm. from the 1960s and I just I love those Hartnell historicals I think they've just done really well so that would be my choice yours? I think I'm going to go for a BBC science fiction series from possibly a couple of years earlier than Galaxy 4 because Galaxy 4 would have been 65 65, 66 I don't think it was as late as 66 65 at the latest it might even have been no because there, there were Dalek stories for both of the first two Christmases weren't there so Christmas 63 was the Daleks Christmas 64 was Dalek Invasion Earth but around, around about then and I, the one I'm um, going for is something called The Monsters which was a completely missing four episode um, story about the Loch Ness Monster mm-hmm. and it appears to have been very fondly remembered as not a great plot but a lot of fun mm. so that's going to be my pick for the Black Archive this time Splendid well out they come returned along with Galaxy 4 along with Galaxy 4 now exists given. now exists in its completeness you may think as in advance in our heads yes in our heads without further ado let's play the official BBC recon of Galaxy 4 and see how they've done I know you've seen it but I haven't enjoy do you not want that thunder flower gin that they're going beyond just the telly snaps. Mm. Oh, I'd forgotten there was that bit of film with Stephen getting his hair cut. Getting his hair cut. So it's a nice mix of telly snaps and film, existing film and audio. Child, it absolutely As a matter of fact, I think we should get some long-deserved, undeserved peace from us. Long-deserved, undeserved. Yeah. And this is new CGI, I think. They're literally bumbling along. I mean, it's very well done, but that skirt actually looks better than the the real thing. Mm. It's weird that they go on something trying to discover its way by touch, when later on in the story there's that big deal about chucking the rock and making making it go obvious that it's. Oh look, it's got a sort of chumbly movement. Chumbly? Yes, you know, almost sort of <laughs> chumbly. Yes, this is like her wanting a pet zombie, isn't it? It is basically. Now, Stephen's quite an underrated companion. I, I think he's excellent. He is excellent. Um, it becomes apparent in, in this one. As I say, I've listened to the first two episodes on audio uh, just this week. He is by far the better companion. And it comes out, and particularly when he's captured by uh, the driving later on. Yeah. Yeah, every time I, I see Peter Burvis in this, I'm struck by just how much he looks like my dad. And that's publicity shot, isn't it? Mm. Oh, that's nice. Mm. Mixture of CGI and telesnap. Do you know there are times when... Was that a reconstructed model shot? Because that wasn't CGI, was I it? don't know. That I... Hartnell, on occasion, reminds me of Andrew Burt. With certain expressions. Who are they? No idea, but aren't they a lovely surprise? We are the Dravin. We are from the planet Drava in Galaxy 4. I can't think of another time in the, the 60s where Mother. there was a companion that made it quite so obvious that he fancied somebody. More machines will come. They will capture you and take you to the Jamie. ruins. Well, as blatant as that. Victoria wearing a skirt and turned with the side of I'm still not sure it's, it's quite as blatant as that. But yeah, I take your point. The very linear episodes, certainly one and two, they just follow one story strand. There's no subplots yeah. up to now. Um, and by the time you get to episode three, there's only ever two. It splits off with, first of all, is it Vicky that stays behind and the Doctor and Stephen go off? Uh, yes, it is. And then Stephen stays behind... 
and the Doctor and Vicky go off. So the Doctor and Stephen go back to the TARDIS and find out about the near-impending explosion, and then Vicky and the Doctor go and find the real... So it does split into two kind of separate strands. Yet another use for the Dalek door control. <laughs> and I noticed that in the, back, the background home is a very faint version of the Dalek control room. It's Lady Painfort, isn't it? It can't be. Or is Lady Painfort the, the one from Kings, uh, Keys of Marinus? That's not Fiona, whatever her name is. Because she's about the same age here as she would be in Silver Nemesis. She's probably be in her 20s. Maybe earlier than that in this. The whole describing it in terms of dawn seems a bit odd, particularly for a planet with more than one sun. Yeah. It's kind of slightly irritating in the same way that people describe the countdown to Christmas in terms of the number of sleeps. Oh, that's a, ch- that's a children's thing. Allow that one. Well, yes, kids, I suppose. But adults do it as well. It's just grow up and call it days like any kind of... Oh, no, never grow up. This is a fairly lengthy surviving section of episode yes. one. I think there's about a quarter of the episode yeah, surviving it's, it's in two clips. Four or five minutes, I think. And you see the sleeping draven at the back. That's one of those little subtle things that you wouldn't pick up from a, a tele slab. No, you wouldn't. In the same way as when we were watching um, the, the Master Plan episode with Kevin Spacey. Um, Kevin, Kevin Stoney. Kevin. Oh. <laughs> Oops. Kevin Stoney um, with the with the bars and doing the, the I know my place and all the yeah. the eye movements you'd mi- you miss all of that by. The very generic villains, the Dravins, but at least it is explained in the script that the clones. Yeah. Just need to do a little quick bit of research because I I have heard the story, but I can't work out why. There's such a lengthy section that survives. Oh, it's because um, there was a documentary in the 70s called Who's Doctor Who? And big chunks of the um, the episode were copied for the, uh, to be edited into the, uh, into the show. Right. And there was, is it Jan Vincent Rudsky, who was an advisor on the show and asked to keep the... Uh, the sections of film afterwards and was allowed to. Yeah, it's here, yeah. yeah. Almost six minutes worth of footage from episode one, 400 dawns, is held in the archive, thanks for 77. Although only 30 seconds were eventually used, the footage was discarded. The, the footage that was discarded was kept by Jan Vincent Rudsky. You see, and again, just cuts off mid scene. You see, Vicky's on it, gets left on her own there, and she didn't really do very much. No, but that's Vicky for a large amount of the time, really. Mm. This is a really nice mix of surviving footage, telesnaps, CGI. And what looks like... And that looked like a new model shot, as did the... um, The previous one with the bush. bush thing. Not a scratch, but the tide is looking a little bit like it needs a, a good valet. Oh, the astral map! And I think it only appeared in two stories. It's this and Web Planet. And Twice Upon a Time. Was that a surviving clip? Wasn't from an unearthly child, was it? Yeah, they don't get knocked off their feet, an unearthly child. They pass out. I don't know, there's a lot of rolling around. Go, so, so many times, too gone, hmm? Well, I suggest we go in and sit around here and the scenery. <laughs> Knock on the door. <laughs> <laughs> I've never noticed that. I've never understood why he lies about the number of dawns that are left until... What was the point of that? I mean, if the rules are such enemies of the Garvins, why don't they just wipe them out? Again, nice mix of um, telesnaps, CGI, new visual effects. Screen grabs and production photographs. Yeah. 
There's a fair bit of effort gone into this. Yes. Yeah, I've always been impressed with the way they've, they've done this. I mean, it... A nice little scene there with Stephen trying to reason with yeah. one of the Dravins. But it's very human. It's it's a real character. And mm. the flip side of that coin is Vicky, who isn't a real character. She's written in this childlike, reasonably unintelligent, generic way. And and she was one of the characters that was there as a child. Because, mm. I mean, there was Susan, and then there was Vicky, and then there were... With a bit of a gap, there was Dodo. And then they kind of phased out that kind of character. Yeah. The way she she was written in, Zoe, to a certain extent, but she was never developed that way. No, not really. But Stephen, I feel, was a much better rounded character and worked very well. I, I'm still a huge fan of The Massacre. I would love to see The Massacre or see more. Because there's, what, about half a dozen production photos and that's it? There's remarkably little for the massacre. Yeah. There's no surviving film of any kind at all for that. That's a production still from the time medley. It is, yes. It's been, there's four, I think. Three. There's Marco Polo, yeah. Mission to the Unknown, the massacre. All the others have some form of moving image, whether it's 8mm or clips. Yeah. But there is out there, I noticed... Only recently, and I can't find any reference to it anywhere on the internet, Mark Eden, the tiniest little fragment of movement from Marco Polo. Two little clips. Yeah. I can't find any reference to it anywhere, but it's in one of the... It's in a, a recoloured clips um, profile from on, on YouTube. It's not like that um, redone Wheel in Space and... Um, Fury from the Deep thing that was put out was it in April Fool a few years ago? Oh, that's nice. Oh, it is actually, yes. Well, if it's an April Fool, it's extremely well done. I'll dig it out in a bit. Okay. But I can't work out how it's been done because it's definitely Mark Eden. And I actually think that Darren Nesbitt as Tigana is in there as well, unless I'm misremembering. Because I would have thought if there was any surviving footage from Marco Polo, then it would have been all over fandom having said that I have very little to do with fandom these days mm. I have more to do with fandom these days than I have done in years because podcasts yes that's true do you like the way that they've excused the uh, low production values in the script the driving spaceship looks a little bit low tech and old fashioned and she's just said that all the uh, the real buildings look very temporary realistically they probably were because it's, they're not going to be part of the spaceship. Mm. I mean, there might have been parts of the spaceship used for it. Oh, there it is, the real background, the very faint Dalek bomb. I know what that's now. Ammonia. I tend to think ammonia is fairly distinctive. But... First glimpse of a rill. Now that'll be the end of episode two, so we've now got the full episode three. And this is new territory for you, isn't it? It is. I don't remember seeing this before. Because there was this and Underwater Menace 2 that were discovered at the same time. Mm. And the reels were always we're always a little bit disappointed. Mm. That, I mean, that's a nice-looking set because it makes it look like something temporary, doesn't it? And there's a nice tracking show. Oh, the Chumblies have got lights underneath. I didn't know that. Is that not a metal skirt that's just reflecting? No, actually, underneath the segments, there are flashing lights in rotation there. That's appalling. How can they possibly think that they're hiding behind that tiny desk and that anything wouldn't see them? But we've already established that they're blind. So what are they crouching for? Again, Vicky's role is to be captured. 
Eddie Izzard does a in one of his very early shows. He did a whole scene a sequence on Doctor Who. You know, oh Doctor, I'll just go and get captured. Oh, I've been captured. Did a piece of the set just fall off? It did sound like it. He looks remarkably unconcerned that she's just been cornered by two jumblies. Well, that's a nice aerial shot. Mm, it is. And I think that's quite a nice set. It it does what you want it to yeah. because. It doesn't look as high-tech as the, um, the others. A driving gun turns up in Genesis of the Daleks right at the beginning. I was going to say, are they the same guns as the ones from the War Games? You mentioned that when we were doing the War Games. I can't remember. This is all quite a nice, slightly disturbing bit. It is. It's <laughs> but it, it's, it's quite a nice explanation, sort of exploration mm. of um, an alien psychology. That's a, this is a very nice sequence, isn't mm. it? When you've really got the only genuine Dravin talking to her chess pieces, as if they're... Uh... It's interesting to note that the two 60s Who stories that are off the top of my head, there's Prison in Space, which of course never got made mm. until Big Finish got their hands on it. The two stories that portray female-dominated societies... The the races in them are quite anti men, whereas the male dominated societies just don't refer to women at all. It's just that they're very interesting views of what. I mean, I'm not actually sure that the drivings are specifically anti men, as in, and more just don't see the point. <laughs> well, they did make the point earlier on, don't they? they yes, we've got, we've got they to kill do. the excess ones. Yes, we've got to do. That's fairly anti men. You know, they, they, they serve a purpose, we kill the rest. Stop doing that. What do you want, anyway? Well, I suppose Vicky does do something useful here. Can't remember. Why? What's she doing? Um, she persuades the, the rails to help. Ah. Oh. So that's two useful things she does in the entirety of her part that I can think of. This and the revolt on the um, on Xeros in um, Space Museum. Space Museum. Why can't I see you? It is better that you do not. Not all the dominant species in the universe look like humans. Except she already has done. Yeah. It's a random cutaway shot of William Hartnell looking at ornaments. It's a really nicely preserved print. Yeah, it's not bad. And nice little flash a dissolve shot. That's. Uh... I wish I could see the whole of you. It is better that you do not. It's a cross between a budgie and a, boot, uh, and a fish. It's behind that tent thing. Doing a very slow job of it. Mm. She does a lot of nodding off that particular Dravin. I'd be, uh, she'd be off the staff. Maybe she has Dravin narcolepsy. <laughs> Although you'd have thought they'd have screened that out. Because mm. the, the soldiers are, are they supposed to be clones? Uh, not clones, but sort of genetic <laughs> mass production copies. If there was a clone <laughs> you had a tendency towards narcolepsy, you mm. wouldn't send them into space. <laughs> We've got one of these spare. We'll send that with you. Bit of a tendency to fall asleep, but otherwise quite loyal. <laughs> I've just realised that the spa- the driving spaceship floor has creaky floorboards. And a door control that's on the other side of the, the room from the actual door, which just seems odd. Mm. Now, the Chumbleys now know how to speak English. So why don't they at this point? Because this would solve the whole trapped in an airlock, air being pumped out thing. Uh, 
off to help repair the damage that he's done. The production values are too low. <laughs> I don't know, that's a decent sized set, nicely done. I mean, okay, that desk plonked in the middle of it with hand controls for something that doesn't have hands is a bit odd. <laughs> and there's just a weird sort of collapsed chumbly in the background, not doing anything at all. Maybe it's having a kip. Episode threes are often quite filler, whereas this sort of crackles along, mm. doesn't it? The Doctor's stick's quite ornate, really. I've never... It's quite nice the way the sound changes depending on mm. which side of the glass she's being filmed from. I may be trapped, but you can't harm me. You are in the airlock. We can empty the oxygen out of that section and you will suffocate. If you touch that... Stephen is a space pilot. This should be fairly obvious stuff to him. But he's um, taking the role that was originally written for Barbara. You have three choices. Three. Stay there and die. Go outside and be killed by the machine. Or surrender. That was a nice little overlay shot. Hmm. It's a really decent sized set, isn't mm. it? Why the change in picture quality? Change from set to set. Different well, studio. It's healing. It's, that's where they tended to do a lot of film stuff. And that is quite a big set. Could have done with some sound effects on that gun, really. Has Vicky been in a fight or anything else? I'd, I'd forgotten that, that bit. She was quite proactive, mm. wasn't she? There you go, lights underneath the domes. Hmm. Maybe I've been doing Vicky a slight disservice and saying that she never does anything useful. I mean, she doesn't use, do much. Maybe it's only in surviving episodes that she doesn't do anything. She's burned herself out on the missing ones. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't have a massive number of missing episodes, does she? This, couple of episodes of the Crusades and Mythmakers. That's it. Mm. The Chumbly Bomb comes through the window in a spaceship. Quite a nice sn- uh, smoke effect over there. Over the, over the telesnaps. And that's a, that was a composite photo, wasn't it? Yeah. They're a complete pain in the arse. I'd have left them behind. Well, that's reassuring, and there's no sense of urgency whatsoever. Yes, it sounds very pretty, but you wouldn't want to be caught up in the middle of it. Or being all nonchalant about it. Oh, oh that's nice. CGI drawings. Poor little jab of the hooks. <laughs> I like the room. It's a, a nice, interesting design. Mm. And the whole need to be behind a screen because of the gas thing means that they can have ones that don't actually have to be fully mm. mobile and articulated. I thought they'd already established that Marga's gun was the only one that could damage the Chumblies. Um, the only one that may have been able to damage the Chumblies, they didn't know, because it hadn't been tested, they didn't know for certain that it would. Well, there's some smashing photographs and composites, mm. are you? Yeah. Yeah, they really made the effort. And some nice CGI.
Mm. And do we know what that planet is? Next time, Kemble. Pepe-Poupe, a name with which to conjure. Hmm. So that was Galaxy 4, the reconstruction and the recovered episode 3. What did you think? Uh, I've never really been blown away by Galaxy 4. And um, even though I've got to give a big thumbs up to the effort that's gone into that recon to try and bring a bit of life into it, it's still a very flat story and not really a classic, but... um, but it's very nice that they've put that level of effort into what's basically an extra. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a classic story. Um, I can understand why they're not, there aren't current plans to animate it, mm. because it, I find it an entertaining little story. It is, it is run-of-the-mill. There aren't really any standout wonderful bits, but there are some nice bits in it. Um, you get a good portrayal from the, from the leads. There's an, the, the drawings aren't terribly interesting, but mm. the rules are. The rules are interesting, although they do have the, they do speak in that nineteen fifties alien way. We must go now. We have come. It has been an honour. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye to all the peoples of the earth. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be my first choice to rewatch. And as I said earlier, um, listening to the first couple of episodes this week in the kitchen while I was working, it is a very linear, linear. story. There's very there's not much depth in it, and that was a season opener that opened season three. Yeah, but it was only six weeks or something after season two finished, wasn't it? It wouldn't have been long. Seasons were massive in those days. Season three was almost a year long. Yeah, disappointing the pedestrian, but mm-hmm. um, whereas I'd I'd say averagely entertaining, probably saying the same thing, but from a Glass is half full, glass is half empty perspective. Oh, no, the, the glass just doesn't have the requisite amount of wine or gin in it. It's very true. Oh, that gin was lovely, even though it's one you weren't keen on. Yeah, we'll agree to differ on that one. So. Oh, of course. Drag Queen of the Week. I am Persian. Name your price. Yes, it is. It's time for Drag Queen of the Week. Who wins the the largest number of all viewers this week? <laughs> It's got to um, be Margot, surely. No, I think it's the the Dravins themselves, because they have more elaborate wigs mm. um, and more sequiny dots on the eyebrows. Well, so, if that, or if that's the case, then I'm probably going to go for Sleepy Dravin, the one with narcolepsy. I think she <laughs> she's probably the most draggiest of them all. Yes, and she's she's edging into good territory there. I'll give her a good three. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go for a three, mainly because of the com- the sort of complexity of the wigs and the the sequins in, integrated into the makeup. That's a very drag queeny thing. So driving three gets three obvious. <laughs> and with that, we will sign off. So thank you for listening. We'll see you again in, in a, a couple, couple of weeks', weeks time. time. Yes, with uh, with something hopefully a little bit more lively. What have we got coming up? Oh, God, all sorts of stuff. That's a really difficult question to answer. I, mean, I can tell you what what we're going to be watching, but that doesn't mean that we'll, it'll be released in that order. Release order and transmission order and recording order, completely different. Yeah, so thank you very much, everyone, and we'll see you in a fortnight with the next episode. Goodbye now. To round off the podcast this time, we have a full-length interview with Annika Wills from 2007. This is something I recorded at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. It was a Doctor Who event called Who in the Cavern, hosted by the Wirral Doctor Who group, Fans Like Us. The interviewer is Tim Hurst. 
Well, first of all, I just want to say, really good to be here. And um, I've, I never came to the Cabin Club, you know, when it was when it was right here. It's, it's just fantastic. And backstage, they've made it all, you know, like with all the scratchy marks on the walls. It's just brilliant. It's brilliant. So I'm just really thrilled to be here and, um, and see you all. What about that funny old piece? What was that out of? I was just going to ask you what you remember. <laughs> um, that was the that was the last one, wasn't it? That was the that was the. Um... <laughs> you can tell I'm awake this morning. Um, the faceless ones. That was my last. Uh... Last one that I did. It was indeed. Mm. So, um, just for the benefit of the younger fans, Annika. Oh yeah. Who are you? Who am I? So I played Polly, and um, I can say this now, see, because my lovely friends um, tell me I was the first of um, a long line of very sexy, beautiful Doctor Who girls. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, um, well, the thing is that, that the BBC actually decided in their wisdom in 66 that what they wanted to do was have a, have a 60s chick, you know. So I was the package. <laughs> I came with a short skirt and the long eyelashes, so um, they didn't have to do too much work on me. <laughs> so, but Doctor Who wasn't your first acting job? No, no, no. And you start. I mean, let's, let's just... Uh, my name's Tim, and I've been... I've had this extraordinary pleasure of working with Annika for the last oh, almost a year, nine months or so, on her autobiography, which is an extraordinary tale. And um, that's partly the, the reason we're here today is to, to talk about that and also to share with you um, some little nuggets from the autobiography and we hope that you'll pre-order it today. But I can tell you, fascinating. Amazing story, isn't it, your life? I mean, well, why, have you never, why have you not done it thus far, the, the autobiography? Thus far? Well, I, it sort of diddled around in my head and uh, at one point, um, actually I was coming back from Australia with Colin Baker having done a, a Who thing, and, um, and I said to Gary Russell, you know, I think maybe I would write my book, and he said, no, I wouldn't bother, you won't find a publisher. <laughs> so I got put off the idea, and then Tim came in September in um, Swansea, and uh, and all my objections to doing it, um, he just kind of wiped away. I said, you know, I don't really want anybody to know really what I got up to. <laughs> he said, well, don't worry about that, and I'll sort that. And I said, well, I can't type, so I couldn't, you know. He said, don't worry about that, I'll do that as well. So finally I gave in. And um, actually, the weird thing was that once I'd said, okay, I will write it, the energy that went through me, I was in the bar with the guys until five o'clock in the morning and they couldn't shut me up. I was like, <laughs> so it seemed like the right thing to do. So um, we're deep in it now. It's nearly, it's nearly done, isn't it? It's really basically nearly done. It is nearly done. It's nearly um, done. And also, what, can I go on? Yes. <laughs> um, what we're doing is we're, we're doing self-publishing because um, Publishers are notorious people, and they they send these editors in, and then they have a sort of agenda as to what they think the public wish to read about. And I wanted to tell my story um, on my on my own terms, and so in a way, that was when Tim said we might be able to publish it ourselves. That's what actually gave me the buzz. I thought fantastic because then I have complete control over what's going on, which I like. Yes, and the other thing I just want to, to tell you is that if you're hoping it that it's going to be a great big book about Doctor Who, then you will be disappointed, because the Who is just a part of, of the story, but it's quite a story anyway, and I think it will give you a chuckle, and hopefully it will also make you cry, so... It is an incredible story, and actually the Doctor Who bit is, um, is interesting, but the rest is, is more interesting. So you know, the funny thing was, you see, that, that when I was working, when I was acting, um, Everything settled down because I'm working. It was in between times that everything kicked off. <laughs> so just give us a bit of background, Annika. What was your sort of childhood like? And tell us a bit about your parents. Because one thing I've picked up in the book is that your, your mother is extraordinary and almost warrants a book in herself, the character. And uh, what can you tell us about your upbringing and your, your parents? It's amazing actually to write about my mother because because the thing is that she was she was a very eccentric woman, and it was hard in a way being um, a, a, a daughter of a very wild bohemian woman. This was hard, you know. I could have done with just an ordinary mother, I thought, and and so actually it was difficult. And and I fought with her, you know, and um, and so then when she died, it's been thirty years, and now 
30 years later, I can write about her with tremendous love because now I respect who she was. So it's a lovely fulfillment for me to be able to, to tell the stories of this crazy woman and, and I'm disidentified with it in a way. Um, and uh, she's an angel up there saying, yeah, you know, when I started writing, she kept waking me up in the middle of the night and said, oh, tell that one, that's a good one, you know. <laughs> so it's been a journey. It's been a really interesting journey. Yeah. So how did the acting start? Um, so I started when I was 11 and I was in a film called Child's Play, which, um, which somebody sent me recently, and it's the sweetest thing, it was you, it's the sweetest thing, I have to say, it's a lovely um, film made in 1953, and, um, and it's England, it's the countryside in England, before all the television aerials, and before all the cars, it's, you know, I'm that old, so, you know, that, um, that it's a completely different world. So I started then, and then I had the bug. And um, in that film, uh, Christopher Beanie was um, um, a little boy actor. He was just a star. He was so talented. And he and his little mates all went to a drama school. So I thought, right, okay, that's it. I want to get to a drama school. So magic happened. I mean, just it feels like I've been, I've been, uh, how to describe it? It's just been magic. My life has been magic, actually. When I've wanted to do something, then things just just come, you know. And so, um, you'll have to read how I got into the school. But anyway, I got into school. And then, and then I was never off the television, actually. I worked and worked and worked all the way through. Um, and I did, I was in The Railway Children, um, which was a big television series, and played um, Jenny Agatha's part, or she played mine. <laughs> <laughs> And um, so I've done quite a bit of work. And then into the 60s, um, so before Doctor Who, that, the year that um, I did Doctor Who um, was actually my year because there was a series um, called, at the time called Play of the Week. And um, this was the best television that they were doing. It was the best drama series that the, that the BBC had ever done. And I did that year, 66, I did three of them. I was starring in three of them. So I was already, you know, getting quite a lot of work. And I also did that year The Saint and The Avengers. And then I got Doctor Who. So... So a lot of cult television then. Yes, a lot of cult television. A lot of yes. cult television. Yes. Going back to the railway children, this gave you your first experience of... And I use the word in, with light humour, obsessive fans, isn't it, with the cover. The, which was in the, the wrong setting, the wrong railway line or something, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Tell us a bit about that. Mm. This comes to me now, see, because the producer actually is living in Australia. Because I'm doing a book, again, magic, that he, we sadly are in contact with each other. And he said, oh, God, that, that, that railway, that cover on the Radio Times, because um, they'd taken such care to make sure that it all looked Edwardian and everything was right about it. And then they take the, 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 the Radio Times photographer had taken the photograph and there were these white lines on the platform, which they did in the Second World War, so because all the lights were out and people fell into the track, so they put these white lines down. And so then that was wrong. So then obsessive fans were writing in saying, Ah, you got it wrong. Does that sound familiar? So Annika, I have a little gift for you which I was persuaded to wait till today. This is a surprise. He's been going on about me. Do you want to close your eyes? I think you'll like it. Now, this is the original Radio Times, and we've had one. <laughs> well, oh, go. my God. <laughs> But that music my entire life. Isn't that extraordinary? It's been 60 years. Thank you so much. So, so moving on moving from on. the Railway Children to Doctor Who. I mean, that's, that's really what we're here to talk that's about. That's what we're here to talk about. Can we talk about David Tennant soon? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I'm just going to interrupt you. Yes. I have to say, last night I was um, propounding, I was saying, David Tennant, for me, is the best doctor ever. And this, from and, and this comes from me because I, uh, when I, when I met him, when I met him, when I met yeah. him, David Tennant last um, September, October, um, I said to him, you know, uh, for me, Patrick Troughton was the best doctor. He was my doctor, but he also had this really kind of um, chameleon, 
magic, the little, you know, he was, he was magic. And, and you, David, have the same quality. And it was so lovely because his eyes lit up, expanded, and he went, wow, and they go, coming from you, that's fantastic. But no, I'm afraid he superseded Pat. <laughs> Sorry, Pat. Sorry, Pat. <laughs> that was an interesting day, wasn't it? Because David was as nervous as, me to, as meeting you as you were of him, weren't you? And what you said to him when you met him was brilliant. He, he came, I was with a little, my little bunch of friends, and they said, Annika, he's coming, he's coming. My heart was going boom, boom. <laughs> and then I turned, and he was coming towards, and I, and he said, Annika, and I said, Doctor, how lovely to see you after all these years. And he went, oh! <laughs> and then I wanted to take him home. <laughs> And uh, of course we had a tour of the TARDIS set and the torture set. And they, they actually, they really took care of us, didn't they, Carrie? They, 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 we, we saw everything. We saw the offices. We saw all the young um, guys who are sitting in offices. And I said to them, you must have, they're all Doctor Who fans. And they're all sitting there on their computers making the, making the magic screens behind. And um, so I said to them, but you must, you must think you've just died and gone to heaven because this is the heavenly job, you know. So, so show us how you do it. Let's have a, let's have a spidery thingy walking down the streets and go, oh, okay, look, here you go. So it's fantastic. And then we got to the TARDIS set and um, magic happened, didn't it? It was just, it was much bigger, of course, yeah. than, you know, when... Than it was on the outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> So yeah. that was that was great, and um, so go, going back to, I mean, you're obviously a fan of the new series, <coughs> but going back to the to your time in the series, um, you worked with uh, two doctors, and you were witness, as Charlie said, to the very first regeneration. Yeah. Was that were you nervous that that may or may not work? Yeah, we didn't know whether the British public were going to accept this. You know that suddenly the Doctor would completely change, and or whether to try and get an actor who looked like Bill. And you know that was obviously not going to work. And were they simply going to say, "Get out of here! This is a completely different guy. We're not watching and switching off in their droves." And, and then, as actors, of course, you think, "Well, we haven't got any any work," you know. So, um, so it was it was an exciting moment, and we just you know it was like, "Watch this space," you know. And um, and I always have said that because if you've heard it before, bear with me, um, because it was Pat who took over, I think he very much made that happen because he was so immediately interesting and lovable and funny and quirky that everybody just moved with him, you know. I, I think if it had been Peter Davison, it might not have happened. <laughs> well, given, given that he would have been about 11 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. I, sort of, I mean, actually, I think yeah. they thought, because there was a lot of chat going on, lots of um, gossiping going on with Michael Horden, you know, um, which, again, you see, if it had been Michael Horden, I don't know. I don't know, because he's, you know, mm. and so, so if it hadn't been for Pat, we wouldn't be here today. Which is just so magic. And aren't we, and I, I just want to say to you guys, you Doctor Who fans, if you can pat yourselves on the back because it was your continuing support and conti over the years when it was off the screen that has brought it back. So thank you very much, you guys. So it, it's 45 years old next year. Did you ever think you'd still be here almost 40 years later? It's magic. So many magic things. Yeah. And I also want to say that um, I'm also uh, um, very grateful that you're so kind to me because uh, what you can see of me and who is so little, you know, because they just trashed it. So, um, so I'm very grateful for your love and support. And in a way, writing the book is my way of being able to share more of myself with you because you don't have much on the screen to see. So coming back to the book, um, round about the time you were in Doctor Who, you were also at the, at the height of swinging 60s love. Yeah. You, you were living in an Austin Powers movie, really. You were right <laughs> in yeah. um, so, what, you know, tell us a bit about who, who your friends and associates were at that time and what you were doing and where you were going. Well, the thing was that um, at the time it didn't seem extraordinary, but so, you know, you, you know people talk about the, the fashions and so forth and um, Mary Quant and so forth, but but Mary Court was actually my friend. I mean, we had dinner and stuff, and I and and, and I went to the, her, you know, I was in her her workshops where they were doing 
doing the drawings and designs for the clothes, I was wearing her clothes, not too many, because they were expensive. If you think that um, at the time her dresses were coming out, I would receive 23 quid for a television show. I got more for Doctor Who, so it was earlier. Um, and a Mary Quant dress was 23 quid, so you know, so you didn't have many of them. Um, but they were my friends, and Ozzy Clark was my buddy. He was my buddy. So, and then I know we have to mention John Lennon because we're here. So I did, I did meet John Lennon, but you have to get the book to tell, hear the story. When I, I was a bit cheeky with him, but um, but you know, but then, but then that wasn't ordinary. I mean, to meet to meet somebody like John Lennon when he was absolutely on his peak, you know, it's it's hard to keep your tongue in your head, you know. <laughs> um, but I did anyway. <laughs> in terms of other '60s icons, I mean, Peter Cook was obviously and a great friend, was, and, and was, you introduced Peter Cook to the Beatles, is that right? You. Um, Got him into I, did. Yeah. I did. I taught Peter Cook the twist. <laughs> um, I did. I went to America and and um, Peter, we were going to America. Peter was in New York um, doing Beyond the Fringe and I took an album and I went and said, listen, there's this fantastic new group of boys in England um, and they're called the Beatles and maybe you want to hear. And that was the first album that came out. And by the time we'd come back from America, a few months later, you know, they'd had the, they had a massive, um, uh, what are they called? You know, f you know, people just going bananas, yes. and they didn't know how to handle it. Yes. They weren't, they weren't expecting this. Fantastic. And I was there. <laughs> what, what's very apparent? Okay, what's apparent in the in the book, Annika, is that you're, you, you've just seem to have been there at some very key moments in in the sixties, and I was thinking particularly of. Uh, Noel coming around and saying, what do you think of this song? And, which is incredible. I mean, I'll let you tell the, the story, but that, and, and also, there's a great bit in the book when uh, Annika's talking about some friends of hers, a family that she was friendly with, and had a little brother who was asking advice about being an actor, and this was Jim Broadbent, and the lovely little comment at the end, I wonder what happened to him. Is <laughs> and there's all these fantastic little moments, but I, I love the Noel Harrison story. That's do, do you know who Noel Harrison is? Yeah. Yeah. Rex Harrison's son. Um, well, he was living down the road from us in Fulham, and um, so he popped over one day and he sat in our kitchen on the bench and he said, I've just um, written a song, do you want to hear it? So with his guitar, and he sang us Windmills of Your Mind, which he got an Oscar for, you know, a bit, bit later. So, yeah, so it was just really lovely that people, really what it was, it was a time when there was immense creativity going on, that's what was happening. And so it was really wonderful to be in the very hub of it, you know. Um, when people have asked me before, you were in the sisters, you know, did you were you all the clubs and everything? Well, no, because I was married and I had children, and um, so it wasn't it wasn't that kind of sixties experience that I was having. But I was hanging out with the with the with the movers and the shakers. I was doing a bit of moving and shaking. And of course, myself. you were married to a wonderful old actor. Married yeah. to a wonderful, very old yeah, doctor. <laughs> Screaming old man. <laughs> he's now ninety something. He will. He he won't read the book. His wife. He he lives with a dragon. <laughs> She'll trash him. She'll say it's all rubbish. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, come, coming up to date, you told us a great story last. Sorry, go on. You've yeah, got go something. Yeah, I was gonna. You told us a quite funny story last night about playing Mozart to animals. Okay, oh, singing to... Oh, this is me. Tell us about your life now. Me and my, my um, home life at the moment. It's very funny because somewhere, where did it say somewhere? Was it on the website where it said, she's at peace with herself? Well, this is so funny because I do not live in peace. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's always stuff going on. This winter has been very severe storms and um, I live on a tiny, in a tiny cottage on the edge of Dartmoor. And um, so the water was pouring down my chimney and coming up from my kitchen floor. So I had to move out and builders were in. But, uh, but I'm on the edge of the farm. And um, so my garden, um, literally where you are, the cows are, you see. It's very close and they're very sweet and they're my friends. Um, but when their brothers get chipped off, get chipped off to again, come Angus steaks or whatever, um, um, they, the, my lot get upset. The ones who are in my field, they all get terribly upset because these, you know, the farmers are getting up into the into the trunk. So I go into my workshop and with my little music boxy and I play the Mozart because they love music. And then they're so sweet and then they hang out around the, the, the fence and their faces are going they're just lovely. They're just really lovely. So I no, I wanted to say about the water. 
I just did yes. um, the narration for the War Machines, which is coming well, out. I believe that Play.com are advertising it, but I don't think there's any details. I don't think it's been announced yet that Annika's done the narration, so that's an exclusive for you today. Because, you know, the, we've got the, the War Machines, and um, that, I mean, that must be out on DVD soon as well, but you've also just done Strange Report, haven't you? Yes. You've just done, so I, maybe people might want to know about Strange Report and the, uh, the forthcoming DVD. That's the fizzy water. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, the Strange Report. So we, we, after Doctor Who, I did the Strange Report, which was um, how many weeks? Mm, 16 episodes? 16 episodes? It was a big 60s um, uh, series. And they wanted, at the end of it, they wanted to go and take it to America. And uh, uh, what I didn't realise was that um, we had a buyout clause. Who told me that? Somebody told me that recently. It's amazing to me that, you know, when you're an actor, you don't know. You're just busy, uh, you know, learning your lines and doing your stuff. Um, it's afterwards that people come and give you all this information. So apparently there was a buyout clause that Tony had that at the... Because they wanted to, to go to America and, and do another 26, and, and they really wanted it to be an American series. It was American money. We did it in Pinewood. And we, we got together, Tony Quayle and me, and he said, do you want it, do you want it? And my marriage was very wobbly at the time, and I couldn't see that going to America with my children was going to be a good idea at all. And I'd been to Los Angeles, and I didn't like it much. Um, you can't walk in Los Angeles, they don't let you walk, you drive everywhere. My, my, my husband and I, we, when we were there, we walked. We got picked up by the police. We said, what, they said, well, what are you doing walking? What are you walking? <laughs> walking. <laughs> you know? So I didn't, so we both decided no. So we went down to the office and we said to the American producers, no, we're not going to do it. They must have been so disappointed. Yeah, so, and that was literally, I turned my back on it then and I walked away. And that's become a little treasure, that series, though. I, mean, I know. That's great. I know. And now, we've, now it's, um, we've it's come out again. Totally we've got some. And it's um, digitally enhanced. And then we, I do a little interview on there with um, my friend Roger Lloyd Pack. So we're burbling away together. It's quite sweet. Excellent. So uh, maybe we should take some questions from the audience. Yeah, you do some speaking. <laughs> One last question for yeah. you, actually, again, just sort of with the younger members in mind. Three weeks ago, we saw the surprise return of the Macra. You were there first time round with the macro. Did you ever think they'd come back? And what were they like to work with? <laughs> what were they like to work with? I can't remember if there was anybody in them or whether they were being sort of manipulated. I know that I had to, I had to be eaten, and um, so I had to act. Ooh, being sucked into this thing, and I had my little white courage boots. And so all you saw of Polly was these little white boots and a little. Ah, no! And that was the bit when my children said to their father, watching it at home. Is mummy coming home tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Gobbled by the macro. Absolutely. Yeah. So, anyone have any questions for Annika? Did you ever get a chance to meet a Yeti? A Yeti? No, I never met the Yeti. Oh. I didn't meet the Yeti. Um, um, Brian Blessed kept saying we should go away and search for the Yeti together. <laughs> I never did it. <laughs> Actually, Brian, no, I can't tell that. <laughs> <laughs> That's for two. <laughs> yep. Russell T. Davis said, uh, "There's no blood in Doctor Who. What would you, what would you have done in the 60s, violence-wise, sex-wise, in the, uh, as far as sex and violence in the 60s, films and?" What, where would you be, where would you limit to be? What could you get away with? Is that yeah, what, 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 in the 60s, how is it different in terms of the adult content? Oh, I tell you, you see, this is what I write about, actually. Because it's, it's interesting to see how, of course, the art is reflecting the life. And um, how the sex in, in the late 50s was all undercover. It was very kind of creepy. And I was... Young and I was and I was playing parts where uh, where blokes had to I had to kiss people who I didn't fancy and that was awful and then you know and then the directors were saying things like okay everybody you, we'll pack up for today Annika we'll just hold back with you and Scott and we'll just go through the, the kissing scene again and then you know and it's all gratuitous you know and I knew that and it made me miserable actually so it was kind of interesting to see and that. 
the, the Lord Chamberlain was around at that time, and he put the lid on things. So I did one um, armchair theatre with Alan Bates, directed by Philip Savile. I remember that because Philip Savile kept saying, look, um, I want you to creep along the wall and I'll be the wall. <laughs> so I had to, you know. So it was always all this kind of stuff was going on. And the story was about a girl who got pregnant and uh, wasn't married and so forth. And it never came out because the Lord Chamberlain said um, the girl was not contrite about her condition. So that was the kind of thing that we were working through. you know. And at the same time, having said that, when I was doing the War Machines, the, 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 the narration, it's incredibly dark, actually. I mean, you know, there's massacres, you know. Oh, there's a great massacre and everybody's dead. This is Doctor Who, I was five. You know, so in another, in another way, we weren't, we weren't really aware of what, of what, you know, what was being portrayed. So it was an interesting time. And the day that the Lord Chamberlain got the sack, the next day, we were there, hair came out on the stage, and we had all the people naked and singing about masturbation. <laughs> so it was really good. <laughs> Excuse me, you don't understand. <laughs> I take no notice, I'm just babbling, bumbling over. <laughs> well, I think we have a question at the back there. Yep. Hi, Mr. How did you cope with acting with Carter? Can I extend that and say yes. about. about William Hartnell as well. I mean, what was the, di the contrast? What was the difference? Yeah, the yeah. difference. Yeah, because um, Bill was, Bill was, um, and especially psychologically for me, it was difficult because he was irascible and he'd go off on one, and that was for me very alarming. I, I, I never could handle it when somebody would lose the plot, you know. And also, what he would lose the plot about was very upsetting. You know, he'd suddenly start talking about the Jews and the blacks. You know, and then that was, you know, just where's the exit, you know, I want to leave. So it was hard. So we all had to sort of um, tippy-toe around him. So it was kind of a tense, it was tense times. Um, and at the same time, we were in this great program, so that was good too. So then when Pat came on board, you know, the laughing the, the, and, the, and the drinking began. <laughs> we would go, a lot of drinking happened. We would go to the BBC bar at lunchtime and then we'd get drunk and then we'd giggle our way through the afternoon. I'm ashamed to say we did. And then in the evening we'd go and have some more drinks. <laughs> so we had just fun. And he was an absolutely consummate actor. And what I, writing the book has been wonderful for me because it's made me realize how lucky I was to work with some fantastic people, you know. And, and in this way you learn. You, you learn from these people how to do it, you know. And so Pat was, was a wonderful teacher. What happens when you work with these people is it raises your game, you see. When they're looking you in the eye and, and you know, and you're, you're interacting with them, you know, you, you, you can't be asleep, you can't be no good, you've got to be the best you can be, you know. So, I was lucky. Yeah. Um, Nigel Havers, I was listening to Nigel Havers the other day, and he was saying, they said, you know, what school did you go to? He said, basically, I, I was trained in acting by the BBC, and it's the same for me. I learnt my craft by working. Yes. Know, and working with some amazing people. Absolutely, and, and you were, just going back to the fun you had with Patrick, you were actually part of quite a large TARDIS crew, really, by modern day, when there was four of you in the TARDIS, really. Yes, what a bit crazy. So, uh, you know, was, was, was Fraser the new boy, at, you know, and was, did you have some fun with Fraser? He was a bit um, actually, wet behind the ears, wasn't he? Yeah, I have to tell you the truth, because I do. Uh, Mike Fraser and I thought, Fraser was a nerd. <laughs> we did, we thought, with his beetle haircut and everything. <laughs> so Mike used to get after him. Oh, Fraser, for God's sake. But, um, but, um, but he's a very sweet friend now, and he doesn't mind my saying that. <laughs> well, all he remembers is that I didn't cuddle him. Well, I don't cuddle nerds. <laughs> Any further questions, Richard? His must have, his house must be full of all my paintings, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> uh, there's a famous story about John Pertwee, uh, when he worked with Patrick Pat made up his lines, and John Pertwee didn't like it. I've never heard anyone else complain that it was Patrick Pertwee made up his lines. Was he, was, he was ad-libbing? Did he do that a lot? Yes, yeah. he did, he did, because uh, if he couldn't, you know, always remember your lines, you know. Uh, and then, and so it would be wonderful, because he'd be off on one, and you'd say, 
wait, wait, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not in the script. <laughs> but he did it so convincingly, you know. Um, yes, and John Pertwee, you see, a real professional, and no, no, you don't piss around like that. No, no. But it didn't bother you. No, 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 I loved it, you see, because then, and especially if he did it on camera when you're in the moment. That's what I loved about live telly, because um, you're absolutely in the moment. It is so frightening, it's so frightening, you know, when you know it's going out there and the set might fall down on top of you. You, you are so alive. It's like, it's like, you know, people talk about being, you know, people in the wars, um, that, that they actually get hooked on it in a way, because you're so alive, you're so in the moment. And live television is like that, you yeah. know. Yes. Any more questions? I was just, I was just going to ask you, you mentioned before that you would love to, love to have worked with uh, Tom Baker. I mean, what's, what's your, what makes you say that you, how old are the doctors you like to Yes, he's so mad and eccentric. I'm, I'm sure he also would be very unpredictable. I like <laughs> it when people are unpredictable, you know. Uh, in a way, or I don't like it when they get angry and horrible. <laughs> I, th I think that's almost a shame because he obviously wanted co-stars that could cope with his being unpredictable and, yes. uh, and maybe maybe didn't get it. Yes. It's a sh what a shame they didn't work together. Oh, loads of questions. You obviously said something there. Right. Can I just ask when you went for an audition, did you have to scream? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they didn't ask me to scream. Um, How about falling over? Falling over. Uh, you know what I, uh, again, you know, when I'm writing the book, then you, you know, you're picking out things from the past. And one of the things that I realized was that Innes Lloyd, I was, I must have been Innes Lloyd's sort of um, sexual fantasy. <laughs> it must have been, you know, he must have thought, shit, that's just for me. <laughs> but even, I mean, you were saying that even recently, even recently you've been screaming, being paid to scream for the big finish, you did some... Oh, big, I've had such fun doing Big Finish. I went to Big Finish and I'm playing a lizard woman. And um, and at the end of it, and no, just before we do that, um, and here's this lovely actor sitting in the green room. And I say, oh, you know, nice to see you again. You know, where, where you in Doctor Who? And he said, no, no, I never was in Doctor Who. And Harry Russell's saying, Annika, that's Ian Hogg. He's just one of the greatest Shakespearean actors ever. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, he and I, Ian Hogg and I, at the end of the day's sh um, um, uh, rabbiting away, um, we ha he, Gary said, oh, yeah, we'd just like a little bit of ad-lib roaring from the two of you, and then we can fit that in. So if you just go into the into your cubicle. So we went into two cubicles together, and we've got the headphones on, and we look at each other, and we're just going, oh, wah, wah. We did about three or four minutes, and Ian came out and said, therapy I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have to wrap up now, Annika, so I just uh, want to just say to everyone that you please do come over to the, the stall and she's an extraordinary woman with an extraordinary tale to tell and please give a warm round of applause to Annika. Well we hope you enjoyed that. In the next episode we'll be looking at The Nightmare Man, a BBC series from 1981 about a Scottish island being terrorised by a brutal killer who might be from another world. Join us next time. Thanks a lot, boys and girls. See you soon. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.